during the, the Vietnam War era, so there's a lot of moratoriums going on in the streets and it wasn't a good place to be out in the streets in uniform. Uh, every time you left the base, you were instructed to go out in civvies and be incognito, which was a bit hard when you had short back and sides. People throwing bottles at you and abuse and rotten fruit and rotten uh, vegetables, but, you know, that's all part and parcel of it. And you, you always went out as a group. Ian Gitley is currently an aviation radiation consultant and captained A380s. In the late 1960s, he was a schoolboy in Western Australia. In my second last year at high school, I decided I was going to become a TV technician, and uh, which horrified my father. And a month later, the Air Force came to town with its travelling caravan show and uh, had a video running on the outside of the van showing uh, pilot training and flying jet aircraft. So the ultimate became RAF Academy, as it was called in those days, based in Point Cook. Subsequently, I had to, to be one of the top five students that were applying to the Air Force for consideration, and I managed to be number three. By the time I graduated from the Academy in uh, December of 71, you know, at 21 years of age, Vietnam was just about finished. I was then posted to transport flying at uh, RAF Richmond on uh, 37 Squadron on C-130Es. What we did in 37 was the long-haul strategic airlift for the RAF. So we had regular supply runs to Butterworth once a week. Butterworth is in Malaysia, so we would go up Richmond to Darwin, would take eight hours. Next day was through to Tenga in Singapore, refuel there and then continue on up the Malacca Straits to Butterworth where we had our Mirage squadrons. And while we were on our break at the end of that, week we were over on Penang Island and we got hauled out of one of the local bars at two o'clock on a Saturday afternoon by the military police and told us we had a recall immediately to base. This is end of March 75. We knew something was up, we just didn't know what or where. Then we got the briefing and the briefing was the Herc crew are going on deployment now as the lead aircraft into Saigon. We knew that the place was being overrun. We knew the end was nigh. So, yes, we launched out of there and we, uh, we got airborne, went in and landed into Saigon. After we secured the aircraft for the night as best we could at Tonsonuk, we then departed for downtown to our digs, which were, was the Embassy Hotel. Um, like a lot of Asian cities, very busy, very... Uh, just a lot more uh, condensed, very sad economic status for a lot of the people, people begging in the streets and people asking for money or wanting to change money. People were panicking then, wanting to change their South Vietnamese dong for any US dollars they could get or whatever because everyone was trying to get out of the country. Yeah, very hot, very humid, muggy. Everyone was dressed the same, black pyjamas and, and coolie hats had reports that the towns were falling at the rate of one every four hours. So we became frustrated. We launched without approval from Canberra. We went what we call feet wet. So we flew coastal off the, over the water into Fan Rang. We knew there was 5,000 plus people milling around on the base because we'd get uh, reports each day on a four, hour, four hourly basis from Air America pilots. So we went in there and uh, that's where I saw my first action. We taxied off at the far end, 
into the bomb replenishment area, or BRA as we called it. And as soon as we pulled up, two fuel tankers blocked off our exits so that we couldn't go in or out. And they were walking around firing in the air, keeping, keeping, trying to keep people back from our aircraft until such times we opened the door and we elected not to open a ramp because, again, people would have flooded on and we'd never got the ramp closed again. So we opened one parador and people just basically attacked that door to try and get in and about six or seven rows deep and, and soldiers firing in the air indiscriminately trying to keep them away from the plane. And we're ducking down in the cockpit not knowing if one of these stray bullets are going to come through the aeroplane. We'll put it this way, I think all of us, our pucker bells were working overtime <laughs> Eventually, as they got up against the aircraft, the first person to the aircraft was a pregnant woman, probably seven or eight months pregnant, according to the loadmaster. He was on a restraining harness so that he couldn't be pulled out of the aircraft. He's trying to pull her into the aircraft as people are pressing against her. By the time he got her belly from underneath the aircraft fuselage into the aeroplane, she was a mess. She just aborted on the floor of the aeroplane. And then more people were still pushing, trying to get in. Babies were being thrown. I mean, little babies. This, we're talking weeks or days old, being thrown through the doorway like footballs as parents were trying to get their kids on board the aeroplane and get out. And the loadmaster at one stage had four babies across his chest, holding them, and then turn round and hand them to people sitting on the floor behind them. We had no seating in the aeroplane. Those, as we got on board, we just pushed them up towards the front of the aircraft, sat them on the floor, and then we pulled tie-down devices across the aircraft to stop fore-aft movement. And we ended up subsequently finding out that we had floor-loaded around 256 people when a Herc carries 91. At that stage, uh, as I said, we'd been blocked in, uh, and the controller on his walkie-talkie radio from the tower said, it, was there any more aircraft coming? And we, we just decided amongst ourselves that our best protection was to lie at that stage, and we said, yes, there's more aircraft on the way. With that, they pulled the fuel tankers away to let us leave. Of the 256 on board, we had 10 South Vietnamese troops being led by a lieutenant, and he was the last guy on board, and he did a very good job at keeping the masses away, firing his armour light, and then throwing that away, pulling out his 9mm Browning pistol to uh, fire off rounds from that over their heads to keep the rest away. And then as the parador was being slammed down by the loadmaster, he had his bayonet out under the door to keep the fingers out so they didn't get snapped off. <laughs> Close the door, let's get out of here. By this stage, mortar fires started to arrive on the airfield at the other end, for, as we suspected from Charlie up on this hill. So we scrambled out onto the runway and basically did what we call a high-speed taxi takeoff, hoping that no one got a direct bead on us with one of these mortars. They were lobbing at various points on the airfield. We got airborne and went feet wet down the coast. Well, the Saigon air traffic controllers in the air had obviously been instructed that we were not to be allowed to bring these people into the airfield because they obviously didn't know whether they were whether there were saboteurs or infiltrators in amongst this gaggle of people. So they instructed that we had to fly to an airfield we had no knowledge of, called Bindui down in the middle of the Delta, got our navigator to find where this airfield was, which was about a 20 minutes flight south of Saigon, and went in and landed on this airfield, which was really the equivalent of a dirt strip but bitumenised. It was just a, a strip of bitumen in the middle of nowhere with machine gun nests every 50 metres. 
running around the perimeter and two hangars at one end. So we landed there, we taxied in. Again, we didn't shut down the engine, we were told to wait. A, the giant green cattle truck arrived and they backed that up to the aircraft and then we were allowed to open up the ramp and they basically loaded everyone off the Herc straight onto this cattle truck to take them away. But they singled out the 10 Arvin troops that were on board and they got lined up outside the aircraft and frog marched away around behind the hangars and we suspect that they might have been uh, summarily dispatched for leaving a war zone without authority. At that point they said to us, well now you can go, and we said no we can't, we need fuel. I said we're down to a thousand pounds of fuel per tank. That was the minimum fuel you landed with, not that you took off with. The truck's gone, the troops have been marched away, no fuel coming. We decided, well, we're light now. There's nothing on board, including no fuel. We're gonna, we've got, there's only one place we can go where we might get safety, and that is back to Saigon, which is 20-minute flight away. So uh, that's what we did, and we scrambled basically all the way back to Tonsonut in Saigon and pitched out into the circuit there on a mayday call and landed. Whilst no fuel was indicated on any of the fuel gauges, all the engines were still turning and burning, much to our surprise. It was definitely a relief, definitely lots of beers consumed that night. Well, we spent a few days in Saigon now to sort of collect our thoughts. And then they obviously decide on this Operation Baby Lift. So we're now tasked with taking the first bunch of war waifs, as we called them, across to Bangkok, and Qantas will then pick up the effort from there and fly them directly back to Sydney on a 707. We, all we saw them was arriving in boxes on buses, and there was like, I've had photographs, which you've seen, of two, two babies to a carton, stacked on car, in cardboard cartons on foam rubber, and that's how they were presented to us, like an open shoebox. They had limited nursing and Red Cross personnel around, so I think we had two Red Cross personnel and one nurse, and there was, there was something like 70-odd children. 16 to 18 would have been in these cardboard boxes and had to be bottle-fed. So I spent... We took it in relays. I took, spent time down the back on the flight across to Bangkok helping the, the rest of the staff bottle-feed babies. And that's pretty hard going when you're a 25-year-old. So we flew them across to Bangkok, then we continued on that same evening. We flew them on down, flew the aircraft on down to Butterworth and again overnighted in Butterworth to sort of get our bearings and composure back. And then the next day we started the, the two-day exercise to fly home via Singapore, Darwin and back to Richmond. By the time I got home about five, six days later, I said to my wife, we've got to adopt some of these babies and I had no kids of my own, but that's how strong I felt about it. And it took, and even now I'm feeling a bit uh, emotional, took a long time to get over that. Yeah. yeah. And in a lot of cases, uh, you muddle on through life and you don't think about it until you get to towards the end of your life. Mm. Within three weeks, Saigon's fallen. In that next Three-week period is when you see all the helicopters trying to land on the US Embassy rooftop and take people out 
You know, basically that was all happening two weeks after I left. At that point in time, um, it was now getting towards the end of April in 75. I was then tasked for the remaining four to six months in Richmond with just doing East, what we called East Coasters, which was just like the, the bread run, the milk run. Uh, just bearing in mind that uh, we had also, at the end of that year, had uh, Cyclone Tracy go through Darwin and we were involved in, in that operation as well. Um, I'm still very much involved in defence issues. I'm the Vice President of the RAF Association of New South Wales. It's a worthwhile career. It's a great lifestyle, very rewarding life, great camaraderie, and there is a multitude of support mechanisms there to help you through the rest of your life. Produced by Neil Ashworth, with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Music by Clive Lane.